Personhood always lies behind something. There's no nest without a bird who had a mind. There is no hole without a fox who had a mind. And this little fact alerts us to the notion that there is nothing that exists that does not exist from personhood. I mean, it's interesting to talk about, you know, where did earth come from, that sort of thing. But where did anything come from? You know, think of everything we know now about this enormous cosmos that seems to be expanding at this enormous rate, et cetera, et cetera. Where did it come from? Where did anything at all come from? And what we know from anything we can observe anywhere in this cosmos where it can be observed, that something always comes from a mind. As simple as a bird's nest or as complex as a beautiful piece of music. It comes from a mind. And this then alerts us to a very important Lenten notion, and that is that it takes a spiritual vantage point to see what's most real. And I want to suggest that our world has lost this skill, this practice of noticing what's most real, and it is, at least for me personally, one of the reasons I have come to value Lent, is that it helps us regain a person God, or in this case, in our gospel reading this morning, it helps us recover Jesus as teacher about what's most real and how we interact with it. So the Lenten practices that we value in these next few weeks give us space then to wonder and to seek and to understand what's happening in the processes of our hearts. These little gentle fastings we're doing, maybe it's sugar, you know, maybe it's candy, maybe it's TV, whatever it is. These little things are just gentle guides to help us name what's real in us and to do so in the context of what we were just seeing in the love of God and his work in our lives. So if you look at your gospel reading with us this morning, we're essentially going to stay there and look at temptation and to see what was real in Jesus and how it is that he lived his life in the face of temptation. So you probably remember that the scriptural context here is that this sits between Jesus' baptism and his public ministry. And it's important for us to remember, because we didn't read it this morning, that as Jesus was baptized and as he was coming up out of the water, he and everyone around him heard a voice from heaven that said, some really important things. First, this is my son. Secondly, whom I love. And third, with whom I am well pleased. Now Jesus' story, his deepest inner sense of being was rooted there. It was rooted in that knowledge. And in a sense, like, of course, I mean, from a Trinitarian point of view, he always coexisted with the Father and the Spirit. But as the incarnate Son, living in every way tempted as we are, being fully human as well as being fully divine, this was tested in him. And these tests allow us to have a look into some temptations that have been, by the church for 2,000 years, classically addressed in Lent. So number one, the first issue is Jesus is hungry. 
Well, what's the temptation here? The temptation is not just to turn rocks into bread. The, the underlying temptation is to distrust God. What Satan is inviting him to do is to wonder, will God really care for me? In a sense, we're back to the garden. The temptation that the enemy is putting in front of Jesus is to think that God is abandoning you and that he's treating you poorly. So, like following that logic, so here then is the temptation, act independently of God. You know, for the one who said, let there be light and there was light, saying to a stone, bread, would not have been a big deal. Are you tracking with me here? But to act independently of an eternal Trinitarian relationship that he has heard, spoken to him, is still with him even as he's in flesh, to act independently of God? No way. But even in the face of the enemy saying to him, hey, look, you can do better for yourself. God's, actually, God's obviously not treating you very well here. Here you are starving. Why don't you just act independently? You, certainly you can do better for yourself. And so as we dig a little deeper here then, the deeper temptation is to satisfy your hunger, Jesus, in an inappropriate way. Now I just want, I want to stop here and, or pause and ask you to think with me here. Why would that not have been enough of a temptation for Jesus to actually do it? Like, what was going on in him positively? Like, you know, uh, not just resisting something. Are you with me here? Not just trying to block a punch, but what was positively happening in Jesus such that he could deal with it? Well, the positive thing is, he's precisely on earth in a self-sacrificial mission. And so this temptation is like a heat-seeking missile only to find out, well, there's no engine there in that jet or something. There's nothing for that missile to find. There's no hook in Jesus in which that can actually be something that would take him away from God. And again, well, why? Because Jesus knew the attack on God was wrong. That he was not being mal-cared for. Rather, Jesus knew that fasting was feasting. And while his stomach might have been gurgling, his most essential inner being had been feasting on God for 40 days. And this is what the enemy miscalculates. That Jesus isn't here at his most vulnerable. On the most important level, he's there at his most ready He's been feasting on a relationship with his father in the desert for 40 days. And so when he hears this, it, it, it's like, well, this doesn't actually make any sense to me at all. I know my father cares for me. And I can place my trust in that. Well, how? And the answer is experiential knowledge. So I want to say something here um, that I hope, I hope will help you. Mental Cognitive knowledge about religion is important. There's no doubt. The, the most careful, accurate doctrine we can all have is really helpful. Solid understanding of church history, super helpful. 
Um, being able to think straight theologically, fantastic. Seriously, I mean, people like me have devoted our lives to that. And, and it's fantastic. And this is why those of us who teach, teach. It's, it's important. It was important for us to learn. And it's important for us to pass this story on. But at the end of the day, it's not enough. You have to personally experience what this story is telling. See, it wouldn't have been enough for Jesus to have given a great uh, explanation of Trinity. That's not what helped him answer this. What helped him answer it was his experience of the Father and the Son. And this is why you must never be afraid of the subjectiveness of experience. Experience, by definition, has to be subjective. It's that which we, the subject, experience. Right? God is doing something to us, with us, for us. Are you feeling me here? We're, we're the recipient of something. Therefore, as soon as you know that experientially, it is by definition subjective. Of course. What else could it be? So what I think I would suggest that we want to aim for is not just a perfect objective mind, but not casting that out for just a merely subjective experience of God, but coming to hold those things together, always holding our subjective experiences of God in the light of Scripture and tradition, the mind of the church, of good reason, these sorts of things. These are what has always helped the church into as far as we can get as human beings into the space Jesus answered from. Are you tracking with me? Jesus was answering from a space in him. And if we're going to answer from a similar space, it has to include a similar experiential knowing of God's love. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. I love him. And that makes there nothing for the devil's temptation to snag. Second temptation is essentially to say to Jesus, find your ruler reign in false worship or in false allegiance. In other words, give your allegiance to me. Well, what's the underlying temptation here? The underlying temptation here is to break relationship with his father. And so he essentially says to Jesus, look at what could be yours Jesus. Now, for us, as we think our way through our own Lenten practices, this should call to mind for us, what is our focus? Because can you imagine this? Jesus, you know, looking at this and it being offered to him and him saying, uh, sh I mean, sure, it's a little bit interesting. You know, me and my dad did that a long time ago. But actually, I have this whole other focus. So yes, while that's slightly interesting, I have a different focus. And I would encourage you to use these next weeks of Lent to not simply deal with what feel to you to be issues. Like, um, I, I want to try to stop being manipulative. Well, I mean, great, that's a good goal. But you're going to have to find out what is the focus through which manipulation makes sense. Are you feeling me here? Until you understand the underlying focus, 
like where your heart and mind is set, you're never going to understand the symptoms. You might suppress them for six weeks in Lent, and you might even suppress them for a couple years, but then you get a new boss or you get married. Or you have a kid. You know, something happens in life where suddenly the suppression doesn't work because there's a new context. But if you've understood it through a, a bigger focus, well, then you can bring that inner space with you into whatever life might throw at you. So Jesus is being tempted here to take the easy route, to ignore your call from God and to renounce your relationship with God. But Jesus, of course, would never accept the authority of Satan. Jesus knew that God alone is worthy of his allegiance. And Jesus knew that someday he will rule, but he will rule by and with the Father and the Spirit forever and ever. Well, the third temptation was something like this. Hey, Jesus, test God's protection of you. Now, there's a very important cultural context here that makes this story pop, and we wouldn't necessarily get it. So, so let me give it to you, and you'll see how this story kind of pops. In Jesus' day, if you were thought to be a special religious person, then God would give you special religious protection. And so the underlying temptation here is, hey, Jesus, let's see if God really will protect you. Thus validating the position that he says you have. And we can also trust God's goodness. And so let's do this through this flashy display of power. Let's test your privilege. But again, this has no hook in Jesus because Jesus is committed to the leadership of his father. He would never presumptuously jump. Right? Here's Jesus. Look at me. Here's Jesus. Here's his father. Here's Satan. Satan says, jump. And Jesus says, no way. Wrong impetus. And there is no presumption in, I don't have to test God. There's no presumption in me here towards the Father. So my orientation is this way. This is why Jesus is able to navigate himself through this. He understands what's really happening. And this is important in our reading in Romans. Romans 9, 10, 11, have, when I was being trained in Bible you know, early decades of my career, no, kind of nobody knew what to do with Romans 9, 10, 11. seemed like this kind of weird sidebar that or exorcist that Paul went down or something. And I think better to see it as actually the heart of the book, sort of the pinnacle of the book, where Paul's saying, look, God is summing up what he's doing in Jews and Gentiles alike. And so what Paul's doing in this passage we read this morning from Romans 10 is saying, I want you to see how all this is hooked to the promises of God. If you have it handy there, look at it as he kind of piles up promise upon promise. The word is near you. You will be saved. No one who believes in Jesus will be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. And this is the sense that Jesus had, that he was always safe. And this is what Paul is commending to us. So let's be amateur psychologists here for a moment as we finish this last temptation. What, what would you suppose was in Jesus' mind? <clears throat> I want to suggest this. Look, devil, I was proclaimed son at my baptism. God is already pleased with me. 
I don't have to test anything. There's nothing in me that wants to test God, has to prove anything. I don't need anything more than what just happened to me in my baptism and what I just experienced of God's rich presence with me as I fasted for 40 days in silence and solitude. I mean, can you just see how Jesus was so full of the reality of God that he had no need to test him? So what's the point of all this for us, and how might it help us understand what we might think of as the point of Lent? And for this week, this first week in Lent, I just want to say this. That Jesus could have looked nervously into the future when he heard these temptations and then tried to create that future in partnership with evil. He could have said, well, okay, I'm going to go my own way and take care of myself. I am going to forsake God and my calling is my first priority. I am going to engage in a staged, doubt-induced test of God. Or he could have looked back to the river and called upon his father. And of course, he chooses to look back, we could say, just based on the scriptural narrative to his father. If we wanted to think about it more theologically, he looks back to his eternal coexistence in the Trinity. And that allows him to stand. Now, you may have noticed, if you look at your gospel reading, that Jesus uses scripture. But I don't want you to picture this like old school Star Wars, you know, like lightsabers crossing. Oh, the Lord, the devil said this, and the Lord says this, and it's like, you know, this old school, that's not what you want to picture here. The reason Scripture should be important to us, in a moment we're going to sing uh, the creed together, we're going to sing it this morning instead of saying it. And so, uh, occasionally people ask me, Todd, why do we say the creed every week? Like, I know what I believe, I get it. We say or sing the creed every week. It's just, it's a classic spiritual discipline that says, this is my story. These are the tent pegs of my life. This frames my worldview. This is my sense of who I am and where, where I've come from, who I am, where I'm going, my sense of being together in the body of Christ. This, this is my story. So when you hear Jesus quoting scripture, hear him say, now this is my story. I don't know what story you're telling, Satan. This is my story, my narrative. So if we use that for ourselves, if we just took this this morning, the next couple minutes, as a little basic Lenten practice, what if we tried the same sort of thing, looking at that passage in Romans 10, where it says, everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. See those two little words, calls on? Well, calling upon is a key practice in Lent that our Lenten fastings are always connected to helping us call upon, in that these little fastings creating space in your life, whatever it is that you're doing this Lent, is meant to clear away space and mental clutter. It's meant to help us stop our multitasking, overstimulation, so that we can A, notice what's real, and then B, call upon God. You might have seen an article in the magazine Fast Company, it's been a year or so now, but it was one of those kind of landmark article, articles that said that the typical professional with a smartphone interacts with work an average of 72 hours a week. So just picture someone working who has a smartphone, most of us. 72 hours a week. Now this is from a magazine ironically called Fast Company. I don't know if, I used to read it, I don't read it anymore, but maybe some of you know what it is. 
And the article went on to say that this hyperconnectivity has stolen our attention and caused us to lose any sense of boundaries. And that our constant mental chatter puts us in a constant state of, of fight or flight. That is to say that this stimulation stimulates our adrenal glands. Yeah, that little stuff on your phone has the capacity to stimulate your nervous system and your glandular system and produce in us a constant state of fight or flight. And the article sort of lands the plane by saying, and these endless distractions are ruining our health. And the opposite of fight or flight is rest and digest. Come to a place of stillness and then digest what's real. So that what we're really looking for is to get to the kind of worshipful place that we see in our reading in Deuteronomy. You know, where it rehearses the history of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, how God took them out of Egypt with his strong arm and his right, sorry, his strong hand and his long arm, that is to say his power, and how he did it with signs and miracle wonders, and then brought us into this new place, gave us this land flowing with milk and honey. And then you probably can't see it in your text fast enough, but then there's this beautiful little two-letter word. So, like this is true, this is my story. So, here I am. And the text gives us this beautiful picture of an Israelite standing in the tabernacle, or if you want to view it in the temple, somehow standing in Yahweh's presence with this basket and saying, here is the first fruits. I now offer them back to you in worship. We might say of our time or our money or energy, I hold it before you. This basket that is full of the yield of what you've given me in my life. This is the yield of your harvest. And this is why week after week, you see me stand there with a basket held in my hand as we sing, Lord, this is all from you. I have a sound mind. Well, I have a sound mind to work. Thank you, Lord. I have a strong body to work. Thank you, Lord. I can care for my wife. I can care for my children. I can care for you. Because I, I have been given things more than I can enumerate. And so we just, we notice just one little thing week by week. And we stand before God with this little basket in our hand. But I just want to tell you that little basket has like cosmic worshipful impact. Imagine, you know, the way Revelation puts this, the incense that has flowed up to God week after week as we've said to him, thank you, praise you. All that we have comes from you. And we just offer it back to you. That's the place where we want to get. So as we have a quiet moment here, I want to invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. and Do what you can to still yourself in your body, in your soul. And let's just ask ourselves this morning, what gracious, generous activity of God have you noticed this morning? 
or maybe in this first week of Lent. What gracious, generous provision have you noticed? And of that, what would you like to gather up from your heart this morning and hold before God? Of all God's goodness, what would you like to gather up from your heart and now hold before God?